0: And so Revelation chapter 3, starting with verse 7, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, and I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole earth to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown." Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right. Now, as I mentioned, only two of the seven churches that we find in Revelation 2 and 3 uh, uh, ha- had or had received passing grades from Jesus. As we noted, the other one being Smyrna. Smyrna was a first to receive the highest marks, having endured her fiery trial of persecutions and afflictions. Uh, For the believers in Smyrna, honestly, Jesus was their all. He meant everything to them. He knew their poverty, yet they were rich. so having suffered the loss of everything, she remained faithful. A quote I heard from David Ravenhill years ago when he was here, quoting from his dad, Leonard. And Leonard used to say this, you can't say Jesus is all you need until he is all you have. Well, that was the case in Smyrna. All they had left was God. He was their sufficiency. He was their exceeding great reward. But now tonight, then we we move over to Philadelphia, the sixth church of seven. Only one left, that being Laodicea, that we'll then start looking at on January four of next year and i 'm going to spend for sure two weeks on that one there 's a lot there in, in in the last church, but Philadelphia was the other church to receive the high marks and really christ 's seal of approval. Uh, Smyrna was poor, and Philadelphia was weak and yet despised their difficulties their difficult circumstances, both these churches had maintained their love for Jesus, their loyalty to Christ. And as in the case with all these letters, an understanding really of the town itself uh, where the church was was found is often a key to understanding the insights which are being provided in this letter. And so when Jesus wrote this letter to the church in Philadelphia, he drew upon the rich history of the town itself and then applies it to the Christians who who are living there. And let me give you some stats on the city, three main things that stand out. Number one, the city got its name because of a love of a brother for another. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love we know it as. The city was established by a Pergamum king nearly 200 years before Jesus Christ. As we've already looked at the letter to the church in Pergamum and how it was a citadel-like city, for which, uh, which for years was the capital of an empire, about 150 years before Christ, there lived two brothers, and one of the brothers was a king. Well, he went away on a journey, and while he was gone, the reports came that the king was actually killed. He was assassinated. Well, the townspeople then persuaded the king's brother to take the kingdom, to take the kingship. However, a few weeks later, the brother that was supposedly killed or assassinated shows up, and he wasn't killed, he wasn't assassinated, and so his brother yielded the throne back to him. Back in that day, that didn't happen. All right, uh, his his brother gave him back the throne, which was a contrast, really, in the way brothers in these times often treated one another. As a matter of fact, there were quite a few murders in families to achieve thrones in those days. All right, because people want position and power. Well, later on, the Romans wanted the second brother to take their side and topple the first brother, and promised to do so if he would become king again. He refused. And so when the city was established, they decided to give it the name Philadelphus for the love of brothers. And so, what we see here in this city, as well as in the church, there was this loyalty in their relationships. And that is clearly seen in the quality of the loyalty that this church had for Christ. Number one, another feature, number two, about the city was that this, that that relates to the letter, is that the city was known as what is called a missionary city uh, long before there are even Christians there. Now, what I mean by this is this. Philadelphia was founded as a border town to spread Greek culture to surrounding areas. In fact, it was situated right on the borders of Lydia, Mysia, and, and Phrygia. So the main reason why it was founded by the Pergamum king was that in order that it might spread the Greek language and the Greek civilization to the more barbaric provinces to the east. Uh, they were so successful in spreading Greek language and culture to the surrounding area that within 100 years, just a few years before the birth of Jesus Christ, the mother tongue of Lydia had completely died and, and, and uh, everyone then in this town, in this city spoke Greek. It was so successful in in their endeavors. And so it was incredible to the extent that this city was a missionary city. Now, how does that translate to the church there? Well, the church knew exactly what it meant to be missionary-minded. In other words, to have an open door. We'll get to that language in a bit. An open door for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Christians understood it as a missionary city. It is to this town that the word is given. Behold, I have set before you an open door. Verse 8. And so it was a city of brotherly love, number one. It was a missionary city, number two. But the third characteristic that stands out in this city, it was also what is called an earthquake city. Now, according to the preacher's outline in sermon Bible commentary, Philadelphia knew what it was like to live in the midst of insecure surroundings and under constant stress and strain. For the city sat over a large earthquake fault. In A.D. 17, a terrifying earthquake hit the the area. It was a huge area. It completely destroyed Sardis and 10 other cities. Philadelphia was spared total destruction, but it was practically demolished. And what made it so bad was the continuing tremors that was affecting the town that they felt for a long period of time afterwards. I mean, for years and years, the city was hit by unending tremors each adding to its own panic and crumbling walls to the devastation. The experience of having to constantly run in and out for safety terrorized the population. And because of that, a lot of the people moved out of the town, but they were still frightened by earthquakes and the ongoing tremors. Uh, So keep that in mind as the succeeding generations then never forgot what it was like when they felt those tremors and and, and having to get out and and look for safety and shelter or whatever. And so the church knew what it was like as well uh, becoming a pillar in the temple of God and the promise to the overcomer that he shall go out no more. In other words, you've been going out, you've been trying to find safety, you've been on edge, you no longer need to be considering that because of what Christ was going to tell this church. Now, when Tiberius Caesar learned of the terrible tragedy at Philadelphia, he decided to help rebuild the city and remit its taxes for five years. So the city took on a new name, Neo-Caesarea, literally New Caesarea. About 50 years later, when a new Caesar befriended the city, it was given one more name, the name Flavia, F-A-L-V-I-A. Uh, but but a while after that, it would revert back to its original name, Philadelphia. Now, this is connected in the thought of, of the letter that you're going to be so secure that you're going to be in the temple and you never need go out. In other words, Jesus was saying, you guys, you've been insecure, you've been this and that and everything else, but I'm going to give you, uh, because of your relationship with me, uh, it is a secure relationship. It is a relationship that is is good. Uh, it, it's not temporary. Like the city has changed names, names, names over and over again. But I'm going to put God's name on you. I'm going to put the New Jerusalem name on you. And my new name is going to be on you. So we'll talk about that at the end as well. So in contrast to all that, God will write his name on believers in the heavenly city. Uh, we will display the name of our Savior in a permanent city. No earthquake can ever harm it. In other words, in Jesus, there's a place of security and a place of permanence. That thought's getting across as well. And and it's also connected with Revelation 3.12. He overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. That's kind of the background of this city. Let's look at point one in your outline, and then the character, the character of Christ. As is customary with all the letters that Jesus wrote to the churches in Asia Minor, the Lord represents himself to the city by features of his personality that really specifically apply to the church As I said, up to now, with the five letters that the Lord wrote, uh, we we see a lot of his character taken from what was said in chapter 1. But now, interesting enough, he takes details of his personality, not from the vision in chapter 1 that we've looked at beginning of this past fall, but which are emerging because of the conflict in the city of Philadelphia between the church and the synagogue. In verse 9, we see, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them and come down, uh, come and bow down before your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. And so really what Jesus is doing there, he is promising the church uh, identity that that he has chosen them. They are his chosen ones. The same kind of conflict with the synagogue was going on in other towns, as you'll recall, in Smyrna as well as Thyatira. Evidently, a good number of of the Christians at Philadelphia had themselves been members at one time of the synagogue, but when they embraced Christianity, when they embraced Christ as the Messiah, they then were excluded from the synagogue. Uh, members of the synagogue had extremely bitter feelings toward these who had been their fellow members, and and they were extremely bitter toward the Lord as well. And what they were saying toward Jesus in the synagogue was something like this. He He's not the, the the holy one. He's the defiled one. He's he's the unholy one, born of a virgin. Yeah, who could believe that rubbish? You know, raised in the dead. Uh huh. Sure, we'll we'll believe that one too. You know, and and the suffering Messiah never the true one. Not at all. He's fake. He's false. He's a pretender. The deceiver of Israel. This is the one that leads Israel astray. And that's what that's what the synagogue was saying. And, and so, in contrast to this, the Lord represents Himself to His church here in Philadelphia as the Holy One and the One who is true. The Holy One and the One who is true as a direct rebuttal into what the synagogue was evidently saying about him. So first of all, his character, we came across the phrase, the Holy One. That was a term that was used frequently uh, in the Old Testament to describe God. For example, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, speaking in the language of the Lord, "To to whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. And so God is saying in the Old Testament text, there is no one like me. I am holy. There is a sacredness to me that there is to none else. And so he is the Holy One. In Mark chapter 1, verse 24, when Jesus begins his ministry in Capernaum, in the Capernaum synagogue, and casts out a demon uh, from a possessed man, the demon cries out, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And so understand and never forget that Jesus Christ is holy, he is holy. The word holy is a description of God Himself, and so Christ is claiming to have the very same nature as God the Father, to be perfectly holy, even as God is perfectly holy. Remember that holiness means what? To be set apart and different from all other beings completely. And totally separate and set apart in other words Jesus Christ is supremely holy he reaches the summit of being different from all other beings now this means something significant for the church that is faithful and alive in Philadelphia it means that they are worshiping and following God himself by following Christ By giving their hearts and lives to Christ, they are giving themselves to the supreme majesty, the supreme force of the universe, to the most holy God himself. Hebrews 7.26 says, Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And then Revelation 15, verse 4, Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. And so Christ reveals himself then to this church as the Holy One. He reminds a congregation in Philadelphia of the reality of that for which they have stood and for the cause they have been expelled from the synagogue. Number one, he is holy. Number two, he is not only the Holy One, He is the true one. The true one. The word true means true as opposed to the false. The genuine as opposed to the counterfeit. The real as opposed to the unreal. It is also the opposite of the imperfect, the defective, the frail, and the uncertain. The synagogue, you recall, was saying he's an imposter, he's a fraud, he's a fake, he's a deceiver, he's a false messiah. What is the application? Church, Jesus Christ is the one who is true. All the other gods, little g, are false. He is the only true one, the only true true God. He is the true, the genuine, and the real God. He is the only living and true God. There is no others. All the other gods worshiped by men are false, counterfeit, and unreal compared to the holy one and the true one. A couple of verses that go along with this. Jesus said unto him in John 14 verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And then John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. We have John 18, 37. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? And Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end I was born, and for this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And so he is, number one, the holy one. Number two, he is the true one. The third character reference here is that he identifies himself as the holder of the key of David. One who opens and no one shuts, and who shuts and no one's open, no one opens. So what is the key of David? Well, there's an excellent uh, event in the Old Testament that tells us King Hezekiah had a faithful servant whose name was Eliakim. This servant was the personal secretary, if you will, to King Hezekiah. He was put in complete charge of the king's affairs. No one could gain entrance into the king's presence without coming through Eliakim. This servant alone determined who entered the king's court. God spoke to Isaiah the prophet one day and said the following words, Isaiah 22, verse 22. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, Eliakim's shoulder. So he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. So what is the key? The key of David? The key of David is simply the symbol of authority. Jesus Christ has all authority. Jesus Christ alone opens and shuts the door into God's court and God's presence. Jesus Christ alone determines who lives in heaven and, and with God the Father. He alone grants entrance into the presence of God. The door is opened and the door is closed by Him and Him alone. Jesus Christ has the final say. Period. No other person... No other being has that authority. Jesus Christ alone holds the key to open and shut the door, if you will, to eternal life. You'll recall from chapter 1 that Jesus also said, I hold the keys of death and Hades. As I like to kid around a little bit, but, but tongue-in-cheek truth, the old bachelor in Rome, the Pope, does not hold the key. Jesus holds the key therefore the church that stays focused upon jesus christ can be assured it will live forever as it comes under his authority jesus himself said no one comes to the father except through me all authority has been given to jesus christ and so jesus says then to these beleaguered christians at philadelphia there is one who holds the key the entrance to my kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is granted by me and me alone. Don't fear getting kicked out of the synagogue, but rather fear him who has the exclusive power to include or to exclude. Now, how does that relate then to us? How does the character of Christ in those free few verses in Revelation chapter 3 relate to us as him being the holy one, the true one, and the holder of the key of David? Well, ask yourself, is Jesus those things to me? Is he the holy one to me? Is he the true one to me? Does he have all authority over my life or over your life? You know to those who have received Christ, believed in his name, those who are surrendered to him wholeheartedly, the Lord assures that though, that that he is these things which they have believed. Then the Lord goes on. From, from his character then, gives them this glowing commendation. I scratched out on your outline the word condemnation because this, like the, the previous one, Smyrna, there is no word of condemnation, only commendation. And he says in verse 8, I know that you have but little power. That's not a bad thing because he was saying you, you have a little power. You're not, you're not a massive, huge church, whatever, but you can, do, you can do great things, even as the ladies were told today. There's been mega churches that haven't done as much as as this church has done, even giving those clothes. He says, I know that you have little power, but you have kept my word and have not denied my name. You have kept my word of patient endurance. Now, in the Greek language, it's interesting here, the verb tense is used in a past tense, which means a point of action which had already occurred. In other words, what is being said is not... You are keeping my word and are not denying my name. But what is being said is, by Christ, you have kept my word and you didn't deny my name. Which tells us then that there was a crisis in in the recent past in this church where they were really on the line for their faith. In other words, in the midst of extreme pressure, they held true to the Lord. And the Lord took notice and takes notice of that. The Lord keeps good records, church, all right? We don't know what the test was. We don't know, you know, why he said you held true and I I approve you for it, but it tells me this. God knows everything you and I go through. God knows the trials. He knows the difficulties. He knows the tests. And when you pass that test, guess what? He approves of that. He's keeping good records, and all these tests and all these crunching trials, the Lord says, I see it when you're holding true. I want, you, I want to remind you, he says, of my approval, and, and I see that kind of loyalty. And so the Lord quickly gets around to saying, that's the kind of loyalty that is greatly rewarded before me. What am I saying tonight? I'm simply saying, no matter what happens in your life, stay true, stay loyal, stay devoted to Jesus. He sees it all. Now I believe the fundamental difference between a true and false believer lies in the question really of loyalty. Are you loyal? Are you devoted to Christ? Or are you loyal and devoted to yourself? Because when it comes down to it, are you going to look out for number one yourself? Or are you going to primarily have your loyalties to christ he's after that will you do your own will or that of god will you love self or will you love the lord see being born again simply means that a person is converted from a self-centered existence to one that is becoming increasingly christ-centered the message of the cross is diametrically opposed to loyalty to self Matter of fact, i said before, the essence of all sin is selfishness. Us wanting to get our way instead of surrendering to His way. The saints in Philadelphia were applauded by the Lord for having kept His word. You have have kept my word. Now what does it mean to keep His word? Well, practically, it means they studied His word, they lived the word of God, they, they proclaimed the word of God. A couple of verses in John 8, 51. I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, Jesus said, he will never see death. Keeping his word, obeying his word. John 14, 15, and 16. If you love me, you will obey what I command. So if we're not obeying, we don't love him. All right, and I, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. John 14, 23, Jesus speaking said, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. In John 15, 10, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. Once again, over and over, Jesus speaking, the words are in red, he's talking about the importance of obedience. Keeping his word, Second Timothy two fifteen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth. Or First Peter two two and three. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk. In other words, there ought to be a hunger. There ought to be a, a desire in your heart to grow in Him. To 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 say, God. As I pray often, may you, de- may you increase, may I decrease. In other words, Lord, may, may you have preeminence in my life. And now, we also know from 1 John 2, 3, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. Now, don't miss the significance of this commendation. Jesus says that these believers have kept his word. Things were tough. They had much opposition like most of the churches. Now imagine today how different the church would be instead of keeping up with the Joneses, so to speak, we kept up with Jesus' words. Now, could it be today that the church is more educated than our level of obedience? In other words, we, more, we know more than we obey. Lord, I want a new revelation. God says, I've given you my revelation. Are you obeying it? Are you obedient to my word? Now, what does it mean then, going on to Revelation 3.8? He, sa- he says, and they have not denied my name. What does that mean to not deny his name? Because that statement really goes to the core of what type of believers they really were. Keeping God's word while commendable, Could come out of merely legalistic or Pharisaic, uh, Pharisaical pharisaical hearts. Um, In other words, we're just doing it out of out of we have we got to do this. We got to do this, whatever. And uh, that's not what he's after. He's after a heart that is totally devoted to him, as it says in Matthew ten. 32 and 33, whoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. I think it was last week or even two weeks ago that I briefly shared when I got saved on February 20 of 1983. And there was a message in tongues. And the interpretation of that message in tongues on the night I got saved was basically... I am not ashamed of you. Why are you ashamed of me? And as I shared, it was like a knife cutting my heart. I was convicted to the core and repented that night. And, and, and so he says, you guys, you, you're not denying me. You know, um, have, have you ever, don't answer it, but have you ever denied the Lord before a friend or he felt embarrassed? Friends, you got the truth. He is the Holy One. We have nothing to be ashamed about. We have nothing to deny all right he's either the truth and the lord of all your life or he's 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 lord of all or not at all as we've heard well back to philadelphia with his commendation the lord gives some promises and i love this and i have listed a number of promises and i start underneath his condemnation because my paper doesn't it's small print all right but with with the commendation he gives some promises uh, there is no criticism, as I said, by the way of the church here in Philadelphia. We saw the church in Sardis that there was no commendation, just criticism. But here's a church, Philadelphia, that has uh, the, a remarkably opposite um, evaluation by the Lord. There's no criticism, simply commendation. Now, thinking about that, the Lord then gives us some promises with his commendation. The first one is this. The first promise which he gives in verse 8 to his church is uh, he will grant it an open door. He says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. An open door that no one can shut. I think this is a scripture that can apply and should apply to every believer. Now, an open door can refer to a couple of things. Uh, first of all, it could refer to an open door of salvation, as if the Lord is saying, whosoever will come, let him come. He I mean, the door is open. Come to, to come to Christ. Today is the day of salvation. It's simply assuring us that, that he is the one who grants salvation and he wants all to come, you know. Uh, he's speaking to the church earlier in Revelation 3, later see it, but I, I knock at the door. You know, if any man hear my voice kind of thing. Uh, so the door is open, come on in. Taste taste the goodness of God. But the open door, secondly, can be a door of service or door of ministry. It's perhaps more fitting here. The church at Philadelphia was uniquely located to be a sending center for the gospel of christ to other places and the lord is simply saying and i'm paraphrasing i know that you don't have all that needs to be in terms of a mighty church that can send forth persons but i assure you that even though you have little power I hold that door open, and if I hold it open, no one is going to close it. Friends, when God opens a door of ministry, a door of opportunity, a door of service for you, no devil in hell, no demon, uh, whatever, no no fallen, no, no one's going to stop that. In other words, no one's going to stop what God has put in motion. All right? And I think there are times in our life when we especially are sensitive to open doors. You recall the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, a door has been opened for me for effective work. And he stays at Ephesus for two years or, or three. And in 2 Corinthians two twelve, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel, a door was opened for me in the Lord. In Colossians 4, verse 3, Paul again said while he was in prison, Pray for us also that God may open to us a door for the word. It's right to pray for an open door for the gospel. It's right to pray for an open door for the word of God to touch the hearts of people. But here Jesus is saying, I now hold before you an open door. I remind us once again that we can really do nothing as an individual person or as a body of of Christ in the Lord's work unless he opens the door in other words unless the lord builds the house we that labor labor in vain he's the builder but he opens doors for his body john 15 15 he says apart from me you can do nothing we can't do a single thing apart from him we need him we need the anointing of the holy spirit This is why prayer is so important. Uh, It is he who opens the opportunity. It is he who closes the opportunity. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, The the second missionary journey of Paul. When Paul wanted to desperately go to some places where God slammed the door on him, the Holy Spirit uh, forbid me or kept me from preaching whatever, Paul walked miles and miles trying to find an open door. We have in Acts chapter 16, 6 through 10, Paul's vision of the man from Macedonia. I mean, he wanted to go to Bithynia, northern Turkey today. Lord said no. He wound up in Troas and the Lord gave him an open door of vision. But he kept on trying those doors to see which one would be open. When when the one, when the open one was found, the Lord put him in it in a remarkable way and established him. Now, Let me just say this and take it with a grain of salt, but there's truth to it. So much of Christian life can be frustrating if we stay pounding on the door that God has closed. And don't move on to the door which God has opened. Let me also add, if your heart is not into serving the Lord, more than likely you're never going to see an open door. The Lord says, I set before you an open door, a promise, an open door of ministry, of service, of opportunity. Secondly, he also indicates to them that they will be given eventual recognition. In other words, Jesus promises to identify those he has chosen. Revelation 3.9, I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, if you don't want Jesus calling you a liar, all right? Because he's, he's true. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Basically, Jesus is assuring the church in Philadelphia, believers there, that he will force the false Jews to confess that God loves the believers at Philadelphia. I love that. I love that. Because, honestly, the world tends to think today that it's done with God, it's done with Jesus. We don't want any of that Christianity stuff. It's not true, it's false, it's make-believe or whatever. And it's like the world has yet to realize he's just beginning his eternal plan. You know, um, he has the last word and the last say. See, the hope of Israel was that the heathen would bow down and would recognize their God. We have this in Isaiah verse verse 14 of chapter 60. Isaiah 60, 14. The sons of your oppressors will come bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. And so in supreme irony, the Lord is saying, Israel has become the heathen and the body of Christ has become the Israel of God. Now the synagogue must recognize someday the truth for which the church stands. As Zechariah says, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. These are penetrating prophetic words, which has to do with the relationship of Israel to the church. Now, this teaching would not be complete without addressing that phrase, the synagogue of Satan, Revelation 3.9. This is very strong language and is tantamount to libel if used in some circles today. Um, The synagogue that Jesus refers to is the local community of Jews whose direct purpose was to stand in opposition to the church much the way Saul of Tarsus did. They consider it their mission to attack and persecute the body of Christ in Philadelphia. This was no ordinary resistance but a satanically inspired and energized group of people who were bent on destroying the work of God. I read that and I thought, you know, I see the exact same thing happening today in our nation. People today who are demonically inspired to destroy the work of God in America, to destroy what this nation was built on, the Judeo-Christian principles. A week and a half ago, you can look this up, I read a headline, I shared it with Jill, and it said this, Harvard, Harvard Musical reimagines Jesus-Judas relationship as a Gasean love story. Musical at Harvard portrays Judas as a gay individual who falls in love with Jesus. And I said to Jill, this is the same college that began as a college to train ministers and pastors for the first part of its inception. Matter of fact, in the original Harvard Student Handbook, rule number one, was that students seeking entrance must know Latin and Greek so they could study the scriptures. Quote, Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life, and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, John 17:3, and therefore to lay Jesus as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. And seeing the Lord only giveth wisdom, let everyone seriously set himself by prayer and secret to seek it of him. That was in the Harvard Student Man Book originally. And for over 100 years, more than 50% of all Harvard graduates were pastors. And now, and not just this year, but in previous years, we have this diabolical effort i mean satanically inspired to portray judas and jesus as gay you want to backhand them don't you in jesus name we don't have to do that because jesus when he says they are not jews he was speaking about their relationship with god a true jew according to paul is not one who has been circumcised of the flesh but of the heart and so Jesus is simply reminding his church, not all descendants of Abraham are recognized as God's children. Jesus is very consistent here with his previous denunciation of the Pharisees, for he has stated, you are of your father, the devil. Why? Because they did the same works as their father. And so he promises the Philadelphians that things are going to change, and that he is going to make these Jews come and bow down before them, acknowledging that God is on their side. And they are the ones greatly loved by God. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now, whether this signifies true repentance on the part of these Jews, we are not told nor do we know if their bowing down was genuine or generated. But we do know, according to God's word, church, one day every knee will bow. You can do it on your own will, your own volition, or you will be forced to bow. But you will bow, and you will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the Holy One, the only true One. Revelation chapter 3. Furthermore, thirdly, the Lord tells the church a promise that he will preserve them from the hour of trial. I could spend two or three nights just on the hour of trial. All right, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, verse 10, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Now, the great hour of trial is that which Revelation talks about as coming on the whole world. He will keep them from the hour of trial in reference to the tribulation. Now, there is a difference in how this is interpreted among Bible scholars. Some believe that he will keep them from the hour of trial means that he'll take the church completely out of the trial altogether. In other words, deliverance from the hour of trial simply means the removal of the church from the world. It's where we then look at the rapture. Okay, more about that next year. All right, I'm teasing you a little bit, but true. According to Stanley Horton's commentary on Revelation, quote, the believers are not merely to be kept from Satan, but kept out of a time that is coming on the world. The Greek, he writes, clearly means from or out of, not through. Number one interpretation. Others feel, number two, <clears throat> kept from the hour of trial means that the body of Christ is preserved spiritually in the midst of the great trial, tribulation, which is coming. Now, those who have that particular viewpoint know that the verb kept from is also used one other time in the New Testament. That's John 17, 15, where Jesus says to his disciples, I do not pray that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the power of the evil one. In that sense, the keeping power which the Lord is talking about is not the keeping power of removal, but the keeping power of giving one strength to go through the trial. Bottom line, what is it? One or two? Don't know for sure. I'd given I'd be given to one, all right. That's what I teach and preach and what the assemblies of God believes. But bottom line is, we should be ready for either, and I hope you are. We'll get more about that next, next year, as I said. Uh, but, but honestly, the church in America has known little by way of persecution to this point. From what the Bible tells us, and again, this could be a whole lesson by itself, however, this is going to change as we approach the last days. Jesus stated quite emphatically that one of the signs of the last days and his soon coming would be that we would be hated by all nations because of his name. We'd be hated by all nations because of his name. He went on to say that this would mark the beginning of a time when many then them would fall away. We would do well, I think, to consider the words that he spoke and begin to prepare ourselves and the church accordingly. Next, number four. There is responsibility given to this church then to faithfulness. Verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Now, sometimes in Revelation, the word crown is a laurel wreath that one wore about the heads at weddings or at victories or triumphs but it can also stand for eternal life. Here I wonder if it does not stand for those responsibilities which the Lord gives us as believers to carry out. The Lord is simply saying, as he sets before this church at the open door, watch that no one sees this responsibility from you. It's the responsibility you had, which I had just given to you, and it's not just unilateral. I didn't just bestow it, you know, and you can cavalierly do what you want with it you have a responsibility Christ is saying to keep the crown of service that I give you for you to carry out now which crown do you wear as a Christian as a Christian I wear the crown of a pastor of a teacher now if I was to shirk my responsibility and sleep in until noon on Sundays and you're saying pastor where are you guess what you're going to say your crown belongs to somebody else you're not doing what God's called you to do and so I would I would I would forego or forfeit my crown, my responsibility. And he's saying, let no one take your crown. Uh, there are a lot of ministries in the body of Christ today, ministries of teaching, ministries of of teaching young, you know, aged, uh, young children, adults, whatever, ministries of deacon or counselor, bible teacher, exhorter, all kinds of all kinds of responsibilities. And I guess the Lord is saying, Are you seeking to go along with Christ? yet seeking to escape responsibility in his body? No, part of being in the body of Christ is carrying some kind of responsibility. Make sure that you carry out your responsibility and that no one seizes or no one takes your crown. Don't, he's saying, don't shirk your responsibility, church. Serve. And that's true for them. It's true for us. What's good for them, what he commends, what he promises them, he also promises us today. Now, we find illustrations in Scripture of persons who did lose their crown. Think about this. Esau lost his crown to Jacob through carelessness. The Jews lost to the Gentiles through hardness of heart. Judas lost to Matthias through treachery. Demas lost his crown, having loved this present world. And so Jesus warns the church that no one sees your crown. Which means to us, it's possible to lose our crown. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said that. And then he gives the church some counsel, some challenges. As always in all the churches, he challenges them to conquer, to hear. To him who conquers or overcomes. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. That's a great promise to this earthquake city. Something that remains, something that stands. The Lord was saying, I am going to make you permanent in my kingdom. You'll never have to flee like you fled Philadelphia from time to time because of earthquakes. You're with me and you're with me forever. It's a statement of permanence. It's in real contrast to what he said to Sardis about, hey, if you guys don't wake up, I'm going to seize you and take your name out of the book of life. But here, to Philadelphia, he's saying, I will make you a pillar, something that stands forever, something that the earthquakes have decimated in in times gone by, but I'm going to make sure that you are secure, that you are standing. He also says in this, I will write. I will write on him the name of my God, number one. Number two, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven, and then my own new name. Three names are written on the Christian. Sort of like, if you will, think of it this way, a heavenly passport. How many have a passport? On your passport is your name and the name of your country. It admits you or excludes you from countries in this world. And so the Lord is saying, I am going to give you the heavenly passport which has the name of my God as a tag of ownership. You belong to him. I will also give you the name of the new Jerusalem, the city of my God, and I will give you my new name. Now, I think there is an incredible sort of cross-reference here in Revelation chapter 19, verse 12, where the Lord is pictured as a conqueror who is returning from heaven. Revelation 19:12 says, His eyes are like a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name inscribed which no one knows but himself. And he has a name inscribed which no one knows but himself. Now what can that possibly mean? It can mean that there is a part of the identity of Jesus Christ that is yet, that is yet known to him but not known to us. Now, we know him as Savior, we know him as Redeemer, we know him as friend, as Lord, we know him as judge, yet no one knows himself like he knows himself that new name, that mystery of him which we have not yet fully explored or who we have not yet fully learned to worship. And as I think about that, I thought, all right, there's going to be in heaven new discoveries on our part. We're going to see a facet of him that we've never known, a newness about him or whatever. And I I remember reading this years ago about the new heaven, new earth, and everything else and going on. And and it said, it's like we're going to get into heaven. It's for all eternity, but we're always going to be learning and growing and, and discovering. And we might be there a thousand years, and God pulls the curtain back and says, okay, look at this facet of me that you never knew about before. And we're going to go, wow, Lord, you're so awesome. And then we learn that. And then maybe another thousand years we'll learn this and, and we'll learn that or whatever. It's, it's this constant uh, always learning, always always grasping new, uh, new things about him. Well, what the Lord is promising us there is is that uh, uh, you've lived in Philadelphia, things have changed, the names of the town have changed, but when I write my name on you, Man, it's it's good. It's it's good, you know. And so, what the, what the what the Lord is promising believers here is a permanent residence. Philadelphia, as I said, has been through many name changes, but now the Lord promises His people that they need only go through the name change of having His name placed permanently upon their lives. Now, how many know and would agree that we live in a world today of change? Everything changes. Think about think in your short lifetime how things have changed, even in your lifetime. Now, thirty percent of you, according to these statistics, will change residences sometime this year. I kept a list since COVID. There's been eight family families or individuals family units that have moved away from BCF uh, since COVID started. With that, we've had seven or eight deaths and. 30 some others that just simply don't come to church anymore since covid since march 25, 29, 2020 march 2020 but people move people change in our first 6 years here we changed residences four times i was younger i've been in the current house for 16 years i'm getting older it's just it's okay <laughs> you know it's it's good i don't like to move And we joke, well, my next move is up, and it'll be my last one. But I can say that we've talked about this, and we're going to be downsizing as we get older and and having less to take care of and and whatever. So there's one more, should Jesus, Terry, one more change, at least here, is going to happen. But uh, I know that change can be a watchword of our day. But I I want you to leave with this. What the Lord is saying to the church in Philadelphia, to a people of change is that when you come into my kingdom, when you know me as the true one, as the holy one, I give you permanence. I love that. I love that. Because, my, my friend, when you're surrendered to him, the devil's not going to be able to snatch you from his hands. Amen? And so we have a sense of permanence in a world of change even today. So we have on his promises an open door, Eventual recognition, He'll preserve them in the hour of trial. We'll deal more with that that phrase next next year. Uh, faithfulness, hold on to what you have. you know, uh, overcoming, make a pillar of the temple of my God. I'll write on him the name of my God, the city of my God, and my new name. What a letter to this incredible church. What a letter to us today. Next time we meet, January 4, we're going to finish chapter three. We're going to begin to finish chapter three looking at Laodicea. Laodicea, again, is one of those churches that had it all together, they thought. They thought they were rich, increased with goods, they thought they were in need of nothing. And yet, once again, it's not what we say or what we think that matters, it's what He says. And Jesus says, "Wait a minute, you guys got it all backwards here. Don't you know that you're wretched, pitiful, blind, poor and naked?" I mean, you would think those in that kind of spiritual condition would know it, but those in that kind of spiritual condition often don't know it. And he has some things to say to that church as well. So we'll finish up the seven churches uh, January 4 and 11, more than likely the 11th. Other than that, God bless you. It is 7.15. We got done in, in one setting. Wow, I kept on going, but it's good. All right. God bless you all. Have a great week in the Lord. Don't forget this Sunday, normal services. We have Sunday school the 18th. We have church at 10.30. Everything's normal this Sunday. The following two Sundays, Christmas Day and New Year's Day, no Sunday school, just the 10.30 service, no coffee, whatever. uh, Those two Sundays as well. Uh, No nursery on, on Christmas Day, but there is nursery on January 1, correct? Yes, she's giving me the nod. Other than that, God bless you all. Have a great week in the Lord. All I'm saying is, make sure you live ready. God bless you.